I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm an occasional preacher, a Bible theology nerd, a movie buff. By the time you listeners hear this, I will be on family vacation, and I'm still an evangelical. And Dave, I respect that. That's why I don't wear yoga pants around you. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we can also talk about yoga pants or not. Um, Zach, we have a, a great guest. This is our last episode before a little summer break. I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. And um, I actually read on Twitter today that uh, our guest is an anarchist, at least according to, you know, Christian nationalist Twitter, William Wolf. So we might have an anarchist in the VCW hall today. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds totally, I'm, I, I'd be very surprised if that was the case. Uh, this is a guest that is near and dear to my childhood. Uh, our, our guest today is the founder and proprietor of Wits End, a Victorian house and ice cream parlor located in the town of Odyssey, uh, as well as the inventor, of the Imagination Station, which is a sort of time machine for sending impressionable children into Bible stories for adventures and life lessons. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Whitaker. Thank you. Uh, sorry. Thank wait, you. Sorry. I'm getting, I'm, I'm being told. Oh, okay. All right. So apologies. Apparently, Mr. Whitaker is a fictional character from the Focus on the Family radio series of Adventures and Odyssey. And our guest, Tim Whitaker, is actually the creator and public face of the organization, the New Evangelicals, which is very active on all the social media platforms and actively engages various evangelical figures and spaces with a focus on justice and inclusion. Welcome to the show, Tim Whitaker. Bro, I was going to roll with it. I don't know why you corrected the record. I was like, yeah, that's me, Mr. Whitaker from Wits End. I'm here to re-traumatize the audience. Here I am. It would be super ironic if we just launched into a Focus on the Family episode on the VCW Hall. Well, that was one of our earliest episodes. No, no joke, Tim. My dad wrote an episode of Adventures in Odyssey, created a character named after me, um, and it was played by one of the kids from the show Step by Step uh the what like the abc block of one of those shows you know along oh, with I, I know step by step yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a diehard was, i'm a diehard oh. avengers and odyssey person okay and also step by step fan okay so step by step luckily we're not talking uh sasha or whatever the kickboxer that beat up his wife mark <laughs> mark the blonde kid with the enormous red glasses Yes. Um, I think he wore suspenders sometimes as well, but not maybe maybe I'm blending in Urkel there. But yeah, the guy that played Mark, Christopher, can't remember his last name. He voiced my character, Zachary Sellers, who was a kid who uh, was in a wheelchair due to a car accident where his dad died. And he had a real chip on his shoulder. He's um, Louise. Yeah, it was it was something. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I am a, a... I am an Adventures and Odyssey character. So let me go wow. straight to one of my prepared questions. Uh, so transition. transition. That wasn't it. I thought that was one of your prepared statements to make. <laughs> well, I, I I got I did so much research here. So uh, the first question, uh, wit, what what was it like inventing the Imagination Station? Ah, damn it. Okay. Yes, um. Yes. Great question, Dave. <laughs> do you have any? Could you? Could we pivot to you for the first question? Yeah. You know, I think I I may have something legit here. So okay. Uh, Tim. Tim. <laughs> hi, Tim Whitaker. Hello. Um, you talk about how you were raised in the homeschool movement a lot on uh, your podcast, uh, your media. Um, I believe you mentioned for like nine years you were involved in the homeschool movement, heavily influenced by John MacArthur's theology 
and ideas. And you were around, like we were, conservative evangelicalism and played in many worship bands. You, you mentioned that you're a professional drummer, but your work on the new evangelicals is definitely a critique of a lot of the same evangelicalism that you and we were involved in. So, and also on your show, uh, you say you hold space for those who have been marginalized and harmed by the evangelical church. Yet your the name of your project is still the New Evangelical. So uh, just out of curiosity, what is your relationship at this point with the label of evangelicalism? Are labels more or less important to you or, or just, you know, what, what are your thoughts on all that? You know, I love I love the preparedness of that question. You've done your research. You're using quotes that we use. And then the question's like, so why evangelicals still, given the fact that we as an organization do spend a lot of time critiquing the current evangelical expression, especially in America? And I think that's a really, honestly, fair and good question. Um, there's kind of two parts to this answer. The the honest truth is when I first started the New Evangelicals, I was still serving in my evangelical church, and my framework was still very much evangelicalism as I understood it, even though I had major issues with where things were going. I didn't I didn't know about the term deconstruction or even progressive Christian or you know any of that stuff until I started this work and was still serving at my church. So that so the, the name came out of originally this idea of we need a new evangelical movement, meaning we just need like a better way uh to express this thing that we're all a part of because at the time I was not understanding this where the trump fervor was coming from uh the covid response by so many evangelicals why was sean foyt the worship leader getting so much uh praise from people in these spaces during a pandemic doing these maskless worship gatherings i i just i, I couldn't fathom it even as a more conservative at the time evangelical although i was definitely more moderate you know conservative i, I was not like a hard a hardline conservative so after i started this work i was like oh crap um this evangelical thing only gets more and more problematic like what do i do and i actually read this book um by uh an author named donald dayton he wrote a book called discovering an evangelical heritage and he wrote this in the 60s and essentially as a historian he talks about how some of the early evangelicals through like the holiness and wesleyan tradition were really socially conscious they were egalitarian they were uh early abolitionists they were part of the underground railroad they were kind of even bucking their own trend in their own circles and i was like oh these are my people i mean these are the people that i want to be like when i grow up so to speak so i i realized very early on that that while the current expression of evangelicalism is so from my vantage point, problematic. And, and I understand why folks want to throw the term away. There's also a pretty long, complicated history of a lot of infighting and groups trying to kind of say, actually, you don't own the term evangelical, especially given that the term simply means one who brings good news. I don't think evangelicals today are bringing good news, and I'm just too stubborn to give up that title, frankly. So I'm like, fine, we're new evangelicals. Like, we want to bring some good news back, and fundamentalists do not get to own the 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 corner on what that term means or who gets to use it. It is interesting, though, like how how much of the current discussion ends up getting into the egalitarianism issues, where like I grew up in the charismatic side of things, where that was super normal. Like the, the sort of like you bring up Trump and all that. So many folks like issues with evangelicalism were, you know, bubbling before then, but really came to the fore and were unavoidable for them when Trump came on the scene and evangelicals all embraced him. But but the the sort of evangelicals that he surrounded himself with, the sorts that that are more heavily involved in that tend to be from egalitarian sorts of churches. I mean, you know, his biggest evangelical advisor is Paula White Kane. Um, yeah. who last I checked was a woman. Um, you know, it's it's weird like how many of my like my parents' friends and such, like they have no issue with that. You know, to them, the Bible does not clearly say anything about that, but the Bible clearly says keep the queers out, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because I was not exposed to more charismatic ways of existing until I was like 18 or 19. And tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Zach, because you are 
you know, you grew up born in that movement, but I'm under the impression from what I've seen that even though they do claim egalitarian, you know, theology, it's still pretty male dominated and they still seem to be kind of the gatekeepers even in that movement. I mean, there's always exceptions. Paula White, I think, is one of them. There's a few others. But like, you know, I, I watch people like Sean Foyt speak at these Christian nationals events about, you know, true manhood and men lead and women follow. So I, 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 I see the language, but I'm also kind of curious to see if in your vantage point, it's still in a way very patriarchal as far as how men are the ultimate gatekeepers of who really can be a leader or not in those spaces. Uh, yes and no. I think, I think practically it sort of works out that men are usually the ones leading in those spaces. Mm. Um, but then, I mean, one of the biggest denominations you know, on the charismatic side has always been the four square church, which was founded by Amy Semple McPherson, right? Um, who, you know, was the biggest religious celebrity of her day. Uh, and, yeah. you know, like I remember, you know, my my mom being in, involved in well, both my parents were involved in the worship side of thing, but but leaving leading various initiatives and things. And I don't remember ever having discussions or hearing them talking about uh, having to to prove their their right to be involved in this. Um, if anything, their frustrations came from the pastors wanting to keep the musicianship down <laughs> like like not trusting yeah. the congregation to be able to handle a certain level of skill from the musicians <laughs> yeah, and yeah. saying like we really need to keep it dumb keep it simple and and i respect where they're coming from i not, maybe not respect i understand where they're coming from the whole revolutionary aspect of the jesus movement in the late 60s and 70s was saying you don't need an advanced degree in music you don't need to go to school to learn to, how to play the organ like it's basically a punk movement where like if you got three chords and, a, and an acoustic guitar you can worship i mean you don't even need a guitar like god's not requiring all this much of you let's keep it simple and you know bands like love song like they had amazing harmonies and things they were skilled experienced musicians but like pretty much anybody could like play one of their songs in their churches and things so i think a lot of folks from that movement were really bought into the idea of of simplifying every aspect of church and that for me like this is what brought me to mars hill because the message was simplified <laughs> and the music you know i feel like it was the 20 minute sermon that was just sort of like, congratulations, God loves you. Go have a potluck. Mm. Um, they just didn't really get deep into the Bible at all. And then I encounter Driscoll preaching for over an hour every week and citing books about psychology and sociology and history and art and film and music. And, you know, he eventually dumbed things down significantly and stopped really prepping and just sort of winged it every time. But, um, that was hugely attractive to me. So like Dave, Dave wasn't raised evangelical. He converted, but his side of things was always in the reform tradition. Mm. And me, it was charismatic through uh, until I was 18 and, and found Mars Hill. Got um, so, so did you not have any charismatic experience growing up? You're always more on the reform side or what, what denomination were you raised in? Uh, more it was non-denominational but it was pretty much like a like a, a reformed theology um uh, my first encounter with more charismatic folks was when I turned 17 um I uh, I ended up getting like a, a gig at, at a youth group as a drummer because they needed a drummer and I was kind of tired of playing shout to the Lord in my conservative <laughs> church because they started out as hymns only I was 11 and they threw me on the drums to kind of get the drums in there without you know freaking everyone out but yeah. I was always taught that folks who you know spoke in tongues or believed in like you know charismatic gifts were probably demonically influenced that was kind of the vibe that we got mm. and then when i got to a more charismatic take and they're like actually if you don't have the the second power or coming of the holy spirit uh maybe you're demonic i'm like wait a second if you think you're demonic and you think you're demonic how does this work you know and so <laughs> that was kind of like one of my moments in my life where i was like oh like Maybe there are other people who see these things differently, mm -hmm. um, even though my foundation was still very much a, well, the Bible is clear about A, B, C, D, and E. And they were like, well, 
you know, context and we don't really see it that way, but we're still really concerned about, about, about the Bible and how we interpret it. So I kind of had like, like, um, at that point at 17, things started to really mix and mm-hmm. kind of become its own color where I was listening to folks like Paul Washer and, uh, John MacArthur, but also like listening to Misty Edwards and like encountering the Holy spirit with, with, with friends and practicing prophesying on people. So it was like this really weird kind of hybrid at one point. That's interesting that coming from that direction, from the reform side to experiencing some charismatic stuff that your take was, oh, here's people that just have a different way of expressing this and, 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 but it's, we're still part of this, but you know, we have these disagreements, you know, as far as like they're demonic, they're demonic, whatever. Um, Cause the, the way that I experienced the reform stuff w- with Mars Hill was, oh, this is what the Bible says because my church didn't really get deep into it, that it didn't feel like it was a disagreement. It felt it felt like it was an articulation of it. And and so it made it so that I was very quick to just accept Mark's interpretation of the Bible as what the Bible says. This this is just what the Bible says. And so when he would talk about things that my other church didn't really get into and things that, you know, those sorts of issues of, <clears throat> of well, yeah, if I wrote the Bible, I, I I wouldn't have written it like this, and that's just proof that God wrote it. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm running in punk circles, and I got, you know, gay friends and stuff like that, and, like, now Mark's helping me understand that, oh, okay, they are going to help. Like, it, it is definitely bad because he is specifically articulating this, and, boy, does it suck, but... I guess I just have to go along with it because I'm not God. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that makes so good sense. It was, it was wild. <laughs> yeah. And picking up on that thread of, of queer people and, and tying back into what Tim was saying earlier that the new evangelicals seeks to bring good news. I think the new evangelicals for, you know, I'm not a queer person, I'm a straight person, but I can imagine a queer person listening, uh, feeling like this is good news if they are still a person that wants to keep Jesus at the core or center of of their lives because New Evangelicals is affirming in its theology. And I've also heard you say before in your podcast, Tim, that one of the reasons why you left the last church that you were serving at is because you became LGBTQ affirming. And I think you said they, they kick you out for that. Um, but I'm curious, uh, can you talk about your process? What was that process like being in an evangelical church and then becoming affirming over time and then and then the fallout from changing your theology on that? Well, the journey, you know, I, I when I started TNE, I, I would say I, I was inclusive, but not fully affirming yet, meaning I was like, okay, I am not going to fight people on this. Gay people are loved by God. They can be Christian and be gay at the same time. I don't know how the theology works on that. I still have this voice in the back of my head saying, but these Bible verses, I'm going to just work with it and roll with it. That was kind of where I was when I started it, right? So um, it's interesting because as I reflect even on my own journey, you know, even though I was fully inoculated in conservative evangelical theology, I realized pretty early on even while still pretty conservative in both my politics and and my beliefs that like the evangelical community really tried to was really singling out queer people and really like brutal towards them. I mean, I I was like 19 and seeing this, it wasn't like an epiphany. I was like, wow, like so much talk about the gays, the gays. And I'm thinking at the time, well, why are we highlighting this one sin quote unquote, while we're quiet about so many other, I think more egregious sins that have a way more of an impact on people. And again, I was like 19 and thinking this, you know, still all in, um, so my journey kind of started there and, um, I actually worked at Starbucks when I was 18, who didn't at some point. And, uh, that was when I met my, my first gay friend. And this person just like did not have any of the, um, behaviors that I was taught gay people have, <laughs> you know, like this person wasn't uh debaucherous or trying to sleep with me or like a pervert. They were human and they did a lot of like good work in their community and they were like moral and they hold the conversation with me so we, and that was my first taste of like oh like this person's just a human like they're just a human being and as we became closer friends they told me a story about just how they were treated as a teenager in the church uh essentially called an abomination once they came out to their youth pastor saying they were struggling at the time with their sexual identity oh, and that was really really like, like a wake-up call for me of like wait what like a pastor told you that 
that was so foreign to the experience of church that I, you know, was, was breathing in at the time. So that was kind of the first wake up call experientially of like, wait, that that's, that's messed up. So I kind of was always in this perspective of, Hey church, even if we all think the Bible doesn't support it, we're really cruel towards these people. And it's becoming this political rhetoric that I think is dehumanizing. Can we at least, you know, just say that, Hey, in a free country, gay people have the right to get married. I mean, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that that's a big stretch. We live in a pluralistic society. Again, I'm like 22 now. So I kind of started there. And then I got to a point later on when I got closer to starting TNE, where I thought to myself, you know, it seems to me like at best, there's a lot of debate over how to interpret these six, by the way, six verses, <laughs> not thousands, but six verses. Yeah. And out um, of like 33,000 Bible verses or something. Right. Like that. Yeah. And out of 2000 verses, is that like critique power structures that oppress the poor, you know, six, these six verses. I'm like, huh, well, as I'm, as I'm studying and reading this, I'm, I'm seeing other people interpret these verses differently, making some maybe compelling, compelling cases. I'm not sure if I'm convinced, but I'm, this is compelling. So then I got to a point, and this is where my church and I kind of really had the headbutting. I started TNE, uh, or I was on the verge of it. And my thought was, guys, can we just like make room for gay people? Like, I'm not saying you have to agree with the Bible or, or, or agree with them theologically, but can we just say, hey, like many things in the Christian tradition, we just disagree on these six verses, but we can still make room. So I kind of got there. Uh, and then over time, I just realized that like these verses, I believe, have been weaponized. Um, and that this is part of the tradition from for evangelicalism in America. One of the wake-up calls for me was discovering how segregationists use the Bible to, to, to tell people that God was clear that black people should be separate from white people. And then if you don't believe that, you're a liberal person who does not take the Bible seriously, and you're probably not a Christian. That's Bob Jones. I actually have one of his sermons archived on my computer for this specific reason. And if you swap out black for gay in his sermon, you have the same exact argument through and through for why the Bible is quote unquote clear about segregating the races. So then I was like, wait a second, like we've been here before in history and we look back now at people like Bob Jones, most of us anyway, and we go, what the heck was he thinking? What the heck were white evangelicals thinking? They were so wrong, even though they were so convinced that they were right. So that got me to a point where I said, I'm just, I don't accept at face value these six verses, how they're, the, the language, how they're interpreted. And I think that we need better ways to look at these verses for what, what's currently happening in our cultural moment. And that's how I kind of went from not affirming to an affirming, affirming position. It's interesting how it is such a common eureka moment for such a simple thing but your 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 story about working at Starbucks with a gay person and and learning that gay people are regular people as well is right. is something that a lot of us have. And in your instance, it was like, wow, they have like morals and and they are a right. good person that can do things. I had a similar experience with like the first trans person that I regularly interacted with um, was uh, a member of the last church I that I went to a several years ago it was a Nazarene church. She was in her, I want to say early 60s and only recently had had transitioned. Um was a musician. So she'd talk to me after services like every every time that I played. Um and in talking to her, I learned she was extremely Islamophobic. And <laughs> like like totally okay with just bombing every country there. And for me, it was sort of the opposite situation. It was like, this person could be moral and be as good as me, a Christian, uh, despite being gay, whereas I am straight. And I was like, oh, this person can be awful. And they're just a person. Right. <laughs> like in this right. way, they can have very troubling views because everybody is complicated. We are all people. <laughs> it's the way that it is. And for some reason, that was like my my way of getting to that eureka moment with with trans folks. And, and I've always appreciated that, though. I, I maybe I should have had a few more conversations about the inherent dignity of, of Muslims. <laughs> as well. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm wondering about your homeschool experience in a couple different ways. Um, mm. Dave said something about more like MacArthur was, was somebody you're into. Um, I haven't talked to a lot of people that were directly 
into the Gothard side of things. Mm. I don't really know if there's a geographical thing to that where maybe it didn't take hold on the West Coast. I do know I was born in 82. The homeschool families I knew were more like doing it on their own totally. Like it was kind of weirdos. And it seems like that homeschool networks around here didn't seem like they were as built out and and with the resources for for families that I know around here, like all these homeschooling groups that like they can use the schools and come together and the parents can learn about the thing they're going to be teaching their kids coming up and all that. I'm wondering uh, if, if you had any of the Gothard stuff and I'm wondering because of what you do uh, if, if the homeschool debate circuit stuff, if, if that was part of your experience, I know that like debating is, is big in some of these homeschool circles. Yeah, it wasn't big for me. I was pretty siloed. We had like a homeschooling group that was really my mom's friends. And we were all kind of like in a group together. We would do like field trips and stuff, you know, once a month or something. Mm -hmm. But no, I was pretty much on my own. Bill Gothard teachings hit my church slightly, uh, but my parents kind of recognized it pretty early on, even as they were pretty conservative and said, eh, this whole, I think there's a, there was a book called Growing uh, Growing Kids God's Way. I think that, that that's out of Bill Gothard stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And my parents went through to a few classes and were like, nah, well, this is a little too strict even for us. Yeah. So I kind of avoided a lot of that uh, stuff. And I was never part of like the homeschool debate team. I was never like in like the actual, I guess, like system or ecosystem of that, that homeschooling movement, even though I was still participating. I mean, my curriculum was Bob Jones. Uh, we, we, we did the satellite stuff. I did a Becca, I did paces. Yeah. So I, I did a Becca and, and Bob Jones, but yeah. it was, it was yeah. at a Southern Baptist run. Uh, yeah, uh, school, not homeschool. But yeah, that was my that was what I was sort of feeling like is that a lot of homeschoolers were just using the same materials that I got in Christian school. Um, yeah, but watching yes, the very documentary that the the Gothard thing I was like, huh, okay, this seems different <laughs> from from that sort of stuff. Well, lead, leading from this de debate topic, this this show we're not a debate show. That was one of the things that that Dave and I agreed on at the very beginning. We're not we're not here to have gotcha questions with with guests and, and that's, that's just not what we do. And, and, you know, I can clearly state what I think about things and, and listen to what the other person has to say, but like, I can't name all the logical fallacies and I don't know about <laughs> yeah, all the same. methods of persuasion employed by red herring or something. Some yeah. Like that. I don't you know, know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know what a straw man is, right? Yeah, but, exactly. but like all the others, when people are like, Oh, that's the fallacy of blah, blah, blah. I do. I'd learned about the sunk cost fallacy as a sort of way of, of approaching uh, getting out of church. Like I've put my whole life into this. <laughs> so I, I really should stick with it. Right. No, no, it's not. I, I don't see the value anymore, but that's so, the Marvel cinematic universe right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, awesome. oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> we are all night, but I, you know, I see you on, on Twitter and such responding regularly to, 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 to folks making outlandish, awful statements and things, you know, and and uh, I suppose, you know, offering to debate to some extent. Um, and I'm just I'm I'm wondering about well, I'm wondering how that's gone. And, you know, have you, ever, have you ever changed the mind of one of the posters? Uh, I would expect more of the people in the comments, maybe more where the interesting things happen. And uh, can you talk about that aspect of what you do? Well, I mean, Twitter, I really just first off, Twitter is a is a hot pile of garbage right now it's it's a really yes. hard place to be i've been spending less time on it because to your point zach like yeah you're not changing minds necessarily on there uh i tweet just so people know that there are other christian perspectives that think that these far-right borderline fascist perspectives being pushed by christian nationalists are garbage and hot and and there are, that there are other ways to think about this stuff but i know i'm not i'm not going to change the mind of like a william wolf for example i don't really debate people um, I, even on my podcast, I've had Christian nationalists on the podcast. I've had people, I just interviewed Sean McDowell, for example, he's an apologist, uh, who's, you know, we disagree on a lot. Um, we don't, I'm not a debater either. I'm, I'm a good faith dialoguer. I'm always curious. I want to, you know, meet people, um, you know, with respect and dignity, but of course, ask them serious questions that I have not like you said, Zach, not to be gotcha questions. I'm just genuinely curious. Like, how do you answer this question? Mm -hmm. I have, I have done one conversation with William Wolf through the Honest Youth Pastors channel. Uh, we did a YouTube thing together once. That didn't go super well because it got too debating. And it's just not my style. I'm not even a good debater. I, I don't like doing it. So I, I tend to say, 
I will talk to anyone. I will go to their spaces. I've been to Christian Nationalist events. I've been to Charlie Kirk's Turning Point America Fest, Friend of the Pastors Summit, etc. I have no problem talking to them, going to their spaces, and also being very transparent about what I think about their spaces. But um, I'm not going to debate. It's just not what I really do. Going to the TPUSA, the, the Charlie Kirk gig that you just mentioned, um, I recommend our listeners go to the New Evangelical Podcast and and grab your episode about that. I found that really just intriguing, and and I admire kind of like what you just said. I mean, you weren't going there like some of the right wing groups go to just cherry pick stuff and then just be bombastic and throw bombs. It seemed like you really were going there in good faith to to talk to people hear their perspective, but obviously making it very clear of your extreme disagreements with some of the things that were going on. Uh, you know, Charlie Kirk, in my mind, is at least Christian nationalist adjacent, and I think probably, you know, fully in that camp. And he's only 29 years old right now. I looked well, that up today. Well, in our last episode with with Jack Jenkins, he talked about uh, Charlie Kirk's Turning Point Faith Project right now as explicitly about trying to convince churches to pivot to Christian nationalism as a growth strategy. That's a hundred percent what it is. I mean, I, I, for the record, I, I, I can't say names, but I've talked to people inside the organization who are pretty high level. We keep in touch. I don't know if they think about it like that based on my conversations with them. But what I can say is that the fruit of their events, the rhetoric, the rhetoric that they push, the stuff that Charlie says is absolutely that is one of the angles is, hey, um, you know, uh, you should turn to this. It's it's only getting more popular. We need bold churches that will fight back against the quote unquote woke. Uh, this is what strong churches do. And you should join us. And, we, and we're and we going to cast a really wide theological net, kind of try and bring the reform folks and the charismatics under the same tent to unite under this certain political paradigm. I mean, being at the event, it was, it was pretty clear what they were trying to do. There's no doubt about it. Wow. Yeah, I found a... Um... There's an interesting tidbit about Charlie Kirk's mission that actually Relevant Magazine published a little while ago, and people forget about this. I don't think this is still a thing, but Charlie Kirk at one point before salacious revelations started coming out about Jerry Falwell Jr. was going to start a Falkirk Center at Liberty University, I think, for this kind of apologetics within the culture. And they Relevant started Magazine. It. Oh, yeah, did they start it? it? Is this yeah, still and, going? And no, they ended up uh, ending the relationship maybe a year or two ago, but it went for like, okay. I think a good two or three years. Yeah, I, I just want to say whenever the stuff started coming out about Falwell Jr., all the scandals, I think that, you know, it seems like they kind of backed away from it. But the Relevant Magazine had the quote, which is just just wild to me, uh, quote, comparing their mission to that of William Wallace, you know, the evangelicals love Braveheart. Um, the site says... You know, they're quoting the site, bemoaning the rise of leftism is no longer enough and turning the other cheek in our personal relationships with our neighbors as Jesus taught while advocating our responsibilities on the cultural battlefield is no longer sufficient. That's unquote of their website. And then Relevant Magazine continues. They go on to describe the Falkirk Center as a think tank dedicated to restoring and defending American ideals and Judeo-Christian judeo-christian values in all aspects of life unquote i mean yeah total christian nationalism i mean they changed the name it's just i mean the evangelical obsession with braveheart and then almost completely negating the direct teachings of jesus particularly in the sermon on the mount we're not turning the other cheek anymore it's time for battle it's time for cultural warfare you see this tim a lot in your kind of circles running into the people and uh, yeah this is my tradition baby i mean I, I my my buddies gave me a william wallace sword when i was 18 as a sign of our brotherhood okay, okay. like braveheart was was the movie that we watched right i read wild at heart i had to find a beauty to rescue and excuse me a battle to fight yeah i mean it's it's baked into the evangelical ethos that we are at war War, 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 war is the calling card of this space. You sing songs as a child. I'm in the Lord's army. 
Okay, this is like just the language that 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 you are a part of. We sing songs like Phil Wickham, right? I mean, about, about battles and my God is greater and my God is stronger. I mean, this is the language. There's elevation songs written about about battles like this. So yeah, I mean, this this is this is what the evangelical cultural industrial complex is built off of. There's an enemy. It just happens to be liberalism, and we have to stop the left from destroying the country. That is the mantra. Uh, so yes, I'm not surprised and I'm not surprised to watch people like Charlie Kirk or Jerry Falwell or Trump Jr. jettison Jesus's teachings. <laughs> he, he's trying. <laughs> Trump, bless, bless his heart. Trump, Trump Jr. is trying to be a Charlie Kirk type. I mean, or, oh, totally. He is totally to put it kindly. He is not naturally intellectual <laughs> um, <laughs> to have to, to be able to tell Christians to ignore the direct teaching of Jesus to turn the other cheek, to a round of applause and amens, should let people know where the current climate of quote-unquote Christianity is in America and how far we've gone off the path into cuckoo land. Really, I mm -hmm. shouldn't say cuckoo land, into antichrist land. That's what this yeah. is. You can be a Christian and be antichrist, and that's exactly what this is. And unfortunately for us, history shows us countless examples of people who claimed to be Christians who behaved in antichrist ways that colonized people, that conquered people, that killed people, uh, all while claiming to be representatives of God. So that's what scares me long term. And on the show, we are, of course, familiar with William Wallace as the namesake <laughs> of uh, the, the 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 one referred to in our guy Mark Driscoll's polemic Ugh. as as William Wallace the second. Of course, um, which yeah. I'm the one that released that out into the world, by the way. Um, Mark is is now in Scottsdale, Arizona, which I I saw a little exchange with Diana Butler Bassinu today where she was pointing out, just sort of wondering if, if Phoenix, Scottsdale is kind of becoming a new Colorado Springs. She said, for just a few, uh, being here for just a few days, it's shocking how much institutional infrastructure and social power is being built for white Christian nationalism, especially around churches. And you know that that's the home of Turning Point USA and Turning Point Faith. Um, you, you're you don't live in that area, right? No, I was I was there. You're um, in like see. Pennsylvania, right? I'm in New Jersey, but I was there like, like three weeks ago. Okay, yeah. In uh, Scottsdale, actually, close to Mark's church, ironically. Yeah? Did you, you, you pay him a visit? You, you no, think about I going? I, I thought about it. I didn't have any time. But also, I mean, Dream City Church is out there. That's Luke Barnett. There's a lot of those Christian nationalist mega people out that way. I, I don't know if, if Mark was foreseeing this or if it's yet another opportunity to fall into his lap, because he's certainly been uh, getting together with, you know, NAR types and and. Carrie Lake and and definitely willing to to reach across any bridge where there's potentially power for him on the other side, even if it's folks that he absolutely would have called a heretic exactly. uh, in the Seattle days. It which... is mind blowing to watch that. It is shocking to watch Mark go from one of these reformed dudes standing on God's clear word, totally yeah. repudiate so much of that and now go down the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation adjacent rabbit hole which isn't even like charismatic it's a whole different level of charismatic yeah. you know it's <laughs> it is it is wild to watch it happen in real time he used to kind of say that he's charismatic with a seat belt um <laughs> and at some point the seat belt definitely got removed yeah. um but i'm surprised that he's okay with using a seat belt at all he definitely you know he'd always talk about having an old truck and stuff he seemed like one of those people that'd still be like can't force me to wear a seatbelt. Right, right. Government can't make me do that. <laughs> um, you you travel around, it seems, a fair amount or, or just sort of find yourself in interesting places with the work that you do. Um, that you know, the 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 turning point conference, but you're also you're you're at the Asbury Revival. Oh yeah. Um, I didn't go to that. Mm -hmm. Which I sort of thought of when you when you were talking about initially naming yourself the new evangelicals some of that was like wanting to see this new a, a a move a movement uh turning back towards things things that you you could agree with and see as, see as positive see as you know in inclusive and and justice focused and and all that um i'm i'm wondering if that core part of yourself from when you 
started that is is what drew you to want to go to there because i remember you you when you were there saying i think this is legit i i think this is a real revival um yeah i i i went there because first of all i'm i nowadays i'm very skeptical of any of this kind of stuff i'm, I'm a natural skeptic anyway um and now that i'm i've quote unquote deconstructed and like i'm in this space i'm like really hesitant to call things like a move of god or the spirit right. speaking i'm just really i'm not saying it's impossible i'm just like really hesitant to use that language because of how much i've seen it just not used well i went because um there were some queer students on campus who were down there and i wanted to go and talk to them and say hey like, what are your thoughts on this like are you guys being included are you being shunned like what's the experience i was fully going down there expecting to be met with like oh yeah the, the school won't even acknowledge that we exist and we can't even go in the building and instead i met a trans student who was like hey don't misunderstand this place as an institution is not technically affirming but man the faculty are so welcoming i've actually led worship at this thing and i'm telling you god like spoke to me for the first time in a long time in in that chapel during this time and i was like okay like i i i'm not going to take away from your experience you know one thing i've realized about doing this work is that it's easy to become a fundamentalist all over again where where you start discounting people's experience because you don't maybe understand it or don't agree with it and i told myself going into this revival that as long as i was participating with the students and the faculty not not like this show that it became later on not like that circus of the greg Locke types trying to go down there and really co-opt it but right. if the faculty and student body was saying hey we think something unique is happening here i wanted to be very cognizant of the reality that i'm going into their uh, sacred space and i did not want to become someone to disrupt it even if my own skepticism was still happening up here does that make sense so that's really why i went i, I went to check it out just to kind of report on it and kind of just tell people what i was feeling being down there and what it was like and how it even shifted some of my own paradigms to keep an open mind about things i can't fully understand uh and so that's why i did it it wasn't so much like oh maybe this is confirmation from god that i'm doing the right thing so i have to go down there it was more from like almost like an investigative journalist kind of perspective that's interesting and and, and uh situating it in in the the context of a university where the faculty where majority of students are affirming and and having their own legitimate experiences of faith there despite what the the board or the official rules about human sexuality and stuff may be there we've we've i'm i'm a graduate of seattle pacific university We've done an episode uh, when they were in the thick of of uh, their um, their ongoing uh, sit-in. Um, what do you what do you want? Protest, Dem demonstration, protest. Uh, sort of about about a year ago, I think. Um, spoke with a professor and a student there who is now involved in the legal efforts, like suing the school for like breach of fiduciary duty uh uh for for the way that their policies are policies are like impacting the job prospects of of people that are graduating you know reap is involved with that and one of the things like i, I give a little cliff notes on this I, I i'm i'm assuming you have some sort of familiarity with this you know other things are going on at various christian campuses where we are seeing overall Faculty, students, totally affirming. Lots of LGBTQ kids. A lot of that because uh, they have uh, Christian parents that refuse to let them go to any other school except an evangelical one. <laughs> um, but they're pushing back. They're trying to get changes made. And the institutions, the 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 powers uh, that that be at various institutions are are thus far, for the most part, pushing back pretty harshly on this. With SPU, what led to the demonstration was this understanding that there was a good faith effort to examine policy changes that could happen, tons of work done by a lot of people to come up with proposals, and then the most conservative members of the board did sort of an end around and, and sabotaged it uh, when most of the faculty and students thought there was actually going to be a policy change. And, you know, so they were they were doing a sit in at like outside the offices of of the, the president for weeks and weeks. And I remember when the Asbury stuff went down, a bunch of those students were saying, how come nobody ever called this a revival? Like this is, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, I don't know how many, but a, a large group of students acting out their 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 faith 
in the most personal way, um, trying to affect change in a very difficult environment where the people in charge are hoping they can run out the clock because it's a school. People graduate, people leave, summer was coming. Um, but it was a powerful movement to, to them. They would say it was a powerful movement of, of God amongst them. Um, I suppose what, what, what are your thoughts on, on these, these student movements and, and when is it reasonable to bring out the R word on this stuff? (laughs) Well, I mean, in the, in the American conscience, revival is associated with like extended worship music and like emotionalism a lot of times because we had these great awakenings that were kind of stamped by those features um you know that being said i think that a revival can look like any kind of renaissance or renewal of commitment to the way of jesus in any kind of capacity but as far as like what society or what the evangelical culture in general sees as revival i think is it just kind of ingrained like the worship music emotion maybe prayer, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that's why the Asbury thing kind of took off. And then also, you know, once something kind of catches, it kind of becomes a life of its own. It just kind of takes off all of a sudden. But I do think that we look at history and we look at like American history and evangelicalism and we go, wow, looking back now, we do see, I guess we could call it a revival. We see like these renewals or we see these pushes for justice or equity or inclusion or the civil rights movement. So I do think that that's kind of happening again in its own way in a lot of these like institutions and even in the evangelical church, I hope, uh, long term when it comes to queer inclusion. And I hope that we can look back at this time and say there was a revival of sorts. I just think that language is just so closely associated with that like typical revivalist attitude that i don't know if people would call it a revival even though you you could and it, it, you wouldn't be technically wrong if that makes sense no one has a crystal ball um but obviously you're you know all of us to some extent are deep in the evangelical movement we've been in it for a long time and i'm wondering where you see things going from here because you know from my vantage point it seems like evangelicalism right now there is a lot of fragmentation and there's a lot of fragmentation over on the right. Uh, I've said before in the show that the average median evangelical in America is definitely a conservative person, conservative politics, conservative theology. There's a there's a farther right aspect of Christian nationalism with some of the personalities that we've been talking about uh, that incorporates charismatics and reform theology. Stephen Wolf, William Wolf, all these yes. guys on the reform side. That movement does seem to be growing, and and. You know, whether they can pull a lot of these median average evangelicals with them over to the Christian nationalist side, I guess, remains to be seen. There's smaller groups that are becoming more progressive. But I think my observation is I I would consider myself a progressive, but most people who become progressive, I think, just jettison evangelicalism or the label or whatever else and just either go into another form of Christianity or just stop being Christians. Um what what are your opinions on where you see things going from here, the future of evangelicalism? It's really hard to know. You know, um, the current dominant history is that evangelicalism has been well gatekept by conservative theology and now more so politics. <laughs> Excuse me. But there have always been rebellions inside. There have always been progressive evangelicals pushing back. There's been black evangelicals pushing back. There's been gay evangelicals pushing back. There's been feminist evangelicals pushing back. The problem is that they tend to get snuffed out (laughs) at some point or they get forced out. I mean, William Pinnell is a good example of this, you know, black evangelical who when he started bringing it up like, hey, guys, there's a a real race problem in America. This is like the 60s and 70s. He was kind of forced out of his own evangelical tradition, even though he was pretty theologically conservative, you know, and committed to the inerrancy of the Bible and stuff. So I don't really know. It's it, we're, we're in like a new wave of something is happening. Things are shifting. Um, evangelical institutions are technically shrinking. The, the SBC Southern Baptist Convention just had like a, a record amount of loss for one year. That's great news in my opinion. Um, but I think those people want to go somewhere. And I think that, you know, obviously deconstruction can go in all different ways. Some people walk out of the house of Christian thought completely. Some leave the house of religion completely and just say, Hey, I'm an atheist. I'm, I'm cool with that. And I respect all of those moves and I totally get why people do it. So, so you're not going to ever hear us say like, well, 
you have to reconstruct the right way, guys. Like you have to reconstruct the right yeah. way. Um, that's like just not our thing, you know, like flat out. But I do think that for people who want to stay, uh, who want to stay in the Christian house, that's why people like us exist. And I think a lot of people who are renegotiating their faith, they're really having a crisis of theology more than a crisis of faith. And they want to be a follower of Jesus. They they love the way of Jesus. They're attracted to it. Something about them is about it is compelling. So I do think that we're we're going to see a pretty significant like battle for maybe like what it means to be Christian as we as we go along. But this is a long term play. You know, conservative evangelical institutions are well established. They're well funded. They're well networked, um, and they have their own publishing industry. Like, like they're just really well you know, built. And so to have a counter movement that is pushing back and also offering another way forward takes time to do. And I don't think it's going to like become the dominant evangelical view anytime soon, but I think if we keep pushing, it could. All right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, I guess, in the future as, as things move forward, you know, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of your podcast as well. I I've enjoyed a lot of your interviews and uh, I, uh, I saw that you got to interview Bart airman i should say oh, Dr. Yeah. Bart airman uh so he's i think he's still the religious uh studies chair at university of north carolina um he is a new york times best-selling author misquoting jesus jesus interrupted just for our listeners um and he's I, I think he is good at taking like scholarship and putting it into a way like anybody could understand in his writings but he has the background of he went to Moody, so he was a, a fundamentalist. Then he went to Princeton, Princeton Seminary, and as he studied the text, it uh, became difficult for him. And I think now he's probably agnostic. I think is what he calls himself. Yeah. Um, what was that like to you know? How did that come about? What was that like to interview uh, Bart Ehrman? Well, his publisher reached out to me, which made me go, "Whoa, I, I've arrived!" If they're soliciting me for an interview, I could have. I was honestly shocked. That's I amazing. responded. I responded in all caps. I would love to have Bart on. That'd be amazing. It was like so maybe, maybe they had the same problem as me. Maybe they thought they were asking John Avery Whitaker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, yeah, so I interviewed Bart around his new book, uh, Armageddon, about Revelation. It was great. It was a really good conversation. And um, yeah, it was just awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Bart. He's been helpful for me in so many ways. Uh, his book, Heaven and Hell, was a game changer for me understanding just the hist historical understanding of heaven and hell over time. Uh, so being able to interview him and also kind of ask some of my questions and kind of see if I'm sniffing along, you know, the right lines here to have him confirm some of that stuff was like, okay, this makes me feel a lot better knowing I'm not like crazy for thinking these things, you know? So it, it was really cool being able to talk to him for sure. Right on. You've, you've um, mentioned a few books. How, how about, how about I'll, I'll do a final question and I will note as far as my perception of the future of, evangelicalism all that seeing as i have kids from gen a i don't know <laughs> i don't know what gen they are now uh but 13 and 11 year old uh to to them uh there is no separation between christianity and trump and trump yeah. is the worst thing to ever happen to their lives and they want nothing to do with christians forever oh and wow i do not think that that is a minority opinion uh, for people their age, that essentially half of their lives li were lived in the shadow of that guy. And they were terrified for every day of that presidency. Um, so that's, that's where they're at. <laughs> yeah, um, that tracks. Yeah. You know, and it, it makes sense to me, but, um, you know, I, you know, they, they did go to church the first couple of years of their lives, but they don't remember a whole lot. Um, you've, you've mentioned a fair amount of books. We're heading into the summer. Uh, any, any particular ones? I assume that you've read a lot for the podcast that you, you seem like, you seem like a fairly avid reader. Um, yeah. wonder By if you force, could... not naturally. I'll tell oh you yeah. That. I got to <laughs> really a, like, buckle I'm not a down fast reader. Uh, yeah, I guess just, Wonder if there's there's any recommendations. I guess it could be any any sort of thing. Films, yeah, there's music, books, whatever for some summer summer uh, media consumption for for the listeners here. The book The Bible Told Them So by J. Russell Hawkins is one of my favorites. It's a really helpful understanding of the white Southern evangelical push to maintain segregation via the Bible. Mm. Uh, Eye opening read. 
another book by Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise, really well worth the read. Uh, last one I'll say that I, I just finished The Other Evangelicals by Isaac Sharp is a really helpful invigorating read of just of, of how big the evangelical movement is and has been and the push to really attempt to gatekeep that term, even though it's really impossible to do. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Tim. It was a, a pleasure to meet you. Uh, we've had a few interactions over, over the last few years or whatever on, on Twitter primarily. Um, but uh, it, it was a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's a shame. This is an audio only podcast, but uh, Tim appears to be from the future right now with, with the, the lighting setup that he's got going on. Um, but there's uh, purple in the background, like like the Joker, you know, um, the Joker's <laughs> costume. It, uh, it looks really cool, actually. This um, I hope this <laughs> podcast appearance is is his origin story for becoming something. becoming great, becoming yeah, a, okay. a superhero. Yes. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He, he got the VCW bump from this. I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Tim. Where can people? Uh, we mentioned your podcast, the New Evangelicals Podcast. Wherever people like to get podcasts, where else can people find you online if they want to get into your work? Anywhere that is the New Evangelicals, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, that's all us, Facebook. Uh, we have a website, of course, thenewevangelicals.com. So find us and reach out. Excellent. All right. Well, Dave, um, that was a pretty humbling experience for me to just dive headfirst in, into that interview, thinking that I was speaking with John Avery Whitaker, with Wit him, himself, from Adventures in Odyssey, only to find out um, that it was not a cranky old conservative uh, woke afraid man, but it, but it was a lovely uh, New, New Jersey <laughs> fellow uh, <laughs> named, named yeah. Tim. Uh, you were convinced I, this was going to be a focus on the family thing all the oh way. Man, I've been talking about it for weeks. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. And a apologies, I suppose, to Tim if if uh, he's tired of hearing that joke. Um, I'm going to hope that I'm the first one that did that. Um, <laughs> I think you, I think you have to be. I don't know. I, I mean, who knows how many podcasts he's been interviewed you've on. You've never even heard I'm Adventures in Odyssey, apart from the one episode we covered, right? You didn't no, we no, no, no. We tried. I think we were trying to listen to. My family and I were trying to listen to a couple oh, God, on a road that trip children. that was like one or two years ago. Okay. And I kid you not, we we had one on and they started talking about this men's political like stand up at Washington, D.C. just really yeah. briefly. That's all I got. And you should have seen how quickly I was driving. You should have seen how quickly Michelle turned it off, like just. I mean, for her it's like don't so we, we haven't done that anymore just rule of thumb if it comes from focus on the family it will traumatize your children don't <laughs> don't do that please yeah it's i think that was like good. two years ago um okay. but yes no uh for for this upcoming road trip i'm we're going on family vacation leaving tomorrow by the time our listeners hear this Tuesday, we will be in a rural at a rural lake somewhere. Uh, yes, we will not listen. I to hope you figure out where podcast. before you get there. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> We're just going to drive, man. We'll see where yeah, we end up. You know, look for lakes. All right. You can use yeah. a, a water diviner. Um, <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Michelle, just stick that 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 out the window and follow need... wherever it points. <laughs> we need trees. We need water and we'll be good. All right. So cool. it's, it's going to be, it's my first vacation of the year. I, I think I've only taken one vacation day from work. So this will be like a whole week off. So I, I've been like Oof. nose to the grindstone with a lot of stuff. So yeah, it'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. You deserve it. And yeah. I bought my ticket for the 90 pound wish show July 29th. I need to do that. Uh, so I will see you there. Tracy Tim um, theater. Yeah. I'm, I looked at the ferry schedule. I think I may need to drive around because I think it may be ending a little bit too late for me to know that I will be able to get to the ferry to come home. Yeah, that's um, it, it's tricky uh, living over here now with something going on in Seattle, trying to manage the the ferry schedule. Um, so sometimes driving around, it, it, it's not too bad. I mean, it's a little bit of a drive, but it's not too bad. They gotta they gotta have that ferry running all night. Come on. Yeah, um, seriously. At least there won't be as much traffic for you going home. 
And this has been your local traffic and weather report. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for all of our Seattle listeners who want to know about ferry schedules. Uh... <laughs> and for the kids listening, there used to be this thing called radio. You turn it on in your car. I guess it's still out there. People still do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have cable TV, so I, I if I want to see the Mariners, I mostly just listen. But oh, you don't. But now to... I don't. I don't want to do yeah. either. <laughs> after losing yeah. to the nationals two out of three i i have declared the season over yeah yeah that was kind of the the nail in the coffin you know yeah i think we i think we gotta land this plane because uh, okay. i gotta i gotta finish up some some packing and i think michelle's gotta run some last minute errands i'm gonna try to edit this thing like early in the morning but okay. i don't think there's a lot to edit so it should be all right but um this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Wherever you like to get podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. Dave, I like to get podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Me too. Is the show there? Yes, it is on Apple iTunes. It is there. And can I leave a review there if I wanted to leave a review? Absolutely. And you can leave a rating. And what would that do? It helps, I think, some kind of algorithm that maybe recommends the show along similar genres of podcasts, as far as I know. Fascinating. If if you're listening, I don't think we've gotten a new review for for months, maybe even for all of this year. Yes. So and please leave us a review. Yeah. So yeah, at least just like that. You don't even need to write anything. Just just hit that five stars and submit. And that would be nice because, you know, I think when there haven't been recent ratings, it, I don't think it recommends it to people as much. So, yeah. Uh, so please be nice to grow the you. audience a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do have a Patreon that you could sign up for as little as one dollar a month. Both Zach and I have day jobs, but we work hard to book guests, read books, as we always talk about. So uh, any help that you can give would be uh, very encouraging. Thank you. And you can find us on Twitter at VCW Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M U C A C H. And you can visit his website to uh, hear his music, buy a vinyl record. And that website is Muzak.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tie 10%. It's summer break. <laughs> <laughs>